Well, thank you for inviting me back to Southwinds. I was supposed to be one of the first preachers in this building. But instead, if you remember, I was one of the last preachers who closed out the old building. Construction delays kept me from being one of those first. So thank you for finally inviting me back, Mike. Also, thank you for, as Mike said, supporting Gateway Seminary here on the West Coast. We were for many years Golden Gate Seminary, now Gateway Seminary. You have supported us through your gifts, through the cooperative program, by your prayers, and by sending us students. And we are thankful for all of those things. And we're also thankful for your pastor and his personal involvement with our school over the years in various different ways. Uh, thank you, Mike, for what you've meant to us as a school. Open your Bibles now to Psalm 119 for today's message in your summer series, The Songs of Summer. Our world is overwhelmed with words. Today, a typical, a typical day in the global cellular and internet connection world, there will be six billion text messages sent. And tomorrow, another six billion. And the next day, the same. We are drowning in words. And yet, most of us know that a lot of those words are frivolous, maybe even unnecessary. Some of them are misinformation, and sadly, some of them are disinformation. In the midst of all of these words, we come to Psalm 119, which is itself about words, but more specifically, it's about a word or the word from God. Now, if you know anything at all about Psalm 119, you're getting nervous right now because you're thinking we have a bad combination on the stage this morning. We have Psalm 119, the longest chapter in the Bible, and a long-winded seminary president who's gonna try to go through the whole thing. I hope you brought your lunch. Let's take a look this morning at Psalm 119, a psalm that is about the Word of God, and see if in the context of all these words, we can come to understand something about the Word that really matters and what difference it makes in our lives. So if you'll look with me at the screen for just a moment, I'd like to point out, first of all, five unique aspects of Psalm 119, and these are going to relieve you of some of your stress about dealing with such a long passage of Scripture. Look on the screen with me and you'll see these things. First of all, the psalm, this psalm is the longest psalm and the longest chapter in the Bible. And second, you see that it's written as an acrostic using the Hebrew alphabet. Now let's look into the Bible for just a moment if you have yours open to Psalm 119. If you see Psalm 119, look where it, verse one is. Do you see that? Okay, it's gonna go a lot faster if you talk back to me. Do you see that? Now look right above the number one and you probably see a word that looks a little unusual. It's the word Aleph, A-L-E-F. Do you see that? All right, now if you look through Psalm 119, every eight verses you're gonna see another one of these really unusual words. What's the second one you find after verse eight? Somebody say it out loud. There you go, you found them. 
The reason these are important is because there are 22 of them, and those are the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. So Psalm 119 is actually a long acrostic written based on the Hebrew alphabet, starting with Aleph and going down through each one of these eight uh, verse sections of the psalm begins with that letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So let me do it for you in English. If we did it in English and we wrote a 23rd, or excuse me, a 119th psalm type, type expression, we'd list A through Z and then we'd start and write eight sentences that started with A and eight that start with B and on down until we created a 26 stanza poem. Is everybody working with me on this? Okay, some of you are not too confident. So are, are you getting it now? There's 22 Hebrew letters, there's 22 stanzas of the poem, and every one of the stanzas starts with the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet, and it repeats itself, and that's why you have 176 verses, because there's these eight verse stanzas for each of the 22 letters. You do the math, eight times 22, 176. So far, so good? You didn't know it was going to be a grammar and a math problem right here at the beginning of this sermon. But this is going to be important in just a second to help you understand how to learn from this psalm. Let's go on. Now, the third thing about this psalm is it is all about the Word of God, but it uses eight primary synonyms for the Word of God and ten total different words that essentially are, uh, mean the Word or Word of God. I'm going to show you some of these in just a moment. But there's eight words that are repeated over and over and over throughout the psalm and a couple of others that are also used. Now, another interesting thing about this psalm is after you get past the first three verses, which are kind of an exclamatory opening, after that, the entire rest of the psalm is a prayer. You can tell that by the pronouns because this, the psalm is voiced to you and your speaking to God. And then finally... It's a long poem using colorful and symbolic language. Now, listen carefully because I don't want to be misunderstood. To understand Psalm 119, you really don't have to preach through 176 verses verse by verse because it's a poem. It's a poem that repeats itself over and over again, saying the same things with different shades and different approaches and different techniques and different perspectives. Now, even though you may not be a literature professor, I think you'd see the obvious nature of this. You don't read a textbook the same way you read a poem. When you read a textbook, you're underlining, you're outlining, and you're expecting it to flow from A to B to C and to put out the information in an orderly, focused way. But when you read a poem, you don't read it that way. When you read poetry, you're looking for the imagery, the impressions, the repetition, the underscoring by saying the same thing different ways and saying the same thing in different, from different perspectives. Do you catch what I'm trying to illustrate here? So, when we come to Psalm 119, rather than going through it verse by verse by verse, it's more important to read the entire thing as one long poem and ask yourself the question as you're reading, what are the themes that keep being repeated? What are these eight words that keep being used over and over again? What's the thrust or the emphasis that's trying to be said in so many different ways from so many different perspectives? And so Psalm 119 is really easy to preach through when you 
approach it from that perspective. And once again, if we went through it verse by verse by verse, after about 20 verses, you'd be saying, why do you keep saying the same thing over and over, preacher? Can't you just move on? But remember, it's a poem. And that's the, de the design of poetry to get us to think about the same thing over and over again from slightly different perspectives. So that's what I wanna do with you now for the balance of this message. I wanna walk you through Psalm 119 and help you to understand the key themes that come out of this psalm and help you to see some highlight verses on the screen that will help you to understand what I mean. So let's now talk about five emphases throughout Psalm 119. And the first one is this. The word of God promotes right living. The word of God promotes right living. Now look at the screen with me because this is one of those times technology really helps with preaching uh, because we're gonna look at a lot of verses and we're gonna look at them quickly and you'll be thumbing or flicking, so let's just look at the screen together, all right? Here's some examples of what I mean. The word of God promotes right living. It says, how happy are those whose way is blameless, who walk according to the Lord's instruction. Happy are those who keep his decrees and seek him with all their heart. They do nothing wrong. They walk in his ways. Now you join me and read the next one. How can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping your word. I have sought you with all my heart. Don't let me wander from your commands. I have treasured your word in my heart so that I might not sin against you. This, these, these passages say that the word of God promotes right living. It talks, us about how we, it talks about how we can keep our way pure, how we can not wander, how we can find a way to avoid sin. It keeps, it, we treasure the word of God because it promotes right living. Now every one of us every day make moral and ethical choices. How will we treat someone at work? How will we handle money that's been entrusted to us? How will we deal with a neighbor who is having a difficult, difficulty over a property dispute or something going on in the community? We all make ethical and moral choices every day about relationships and money and property and things like that. And the Bible gives us guidance about how to deal with these kinds of situations. It shows us how to live rightly, how to make good choices, how to do what's appropriate in the moment. Not what the culture tells us to do or what our friend tells us to do or what we might have thought about from some teacher that we heard someday. But no, it tells us directly by speaking to us straight from the Bible about practical ways of living in certain situations like I'm describing. So the word of God promotes right living. Now here's another theme in Psalm 119. Second, the word of God provides encouragement. So let's read the same way. I'll read the first one, then we'll read all together. All together. In verse 28 and 29, it says, I am weary from grief. Strengthen me through your word. Keep me from the way of deceit and graciously give me your instruction. And then you read with me. Remember your word to your servant. You have given me hope through it. This is my comfort in my affliction. You pro your promise has given me life. Let's take the second one and then go back to the first one. You give me comfort in my affliction. You know, in 1995, um, excuse me, 1994, I was diagnosed with cancer. And uh, it, was a, it was a very surprising diagno diagnosis. I was in great health, I thought. And I went for a routine physical and uh, to get some additional life insurance. And in the context of that routine physical, I was discovered to have cancer. And I'll fast forward the story. It's an old story, 1994. You don't wanna hear all those details. 
Obviously, I'm standing here today, so I must have made it through. But, uh, but the, the, treatment for the, the, the treatments were difficult. And again, not going into all the detail, but I wound up having to have two surgeries. One they expected, the second one kind of an emergency type situation within five days. After the second surgery, uh, I wasn't doing very well. The second surgery happened late in the day. It was, a, as I said, a, a bit of a, a crisis type situation. And, and I, I came out of surgery late in the night. I went back, placed in a room. And things weren't going well for me. My body wasn't functioning very well. I was struggling with a number of different th things. Don't need to go into all that. But just take my word for it, it was bad. And as I lay there, I couldn't think straight. I couldn't remember very well. I, I was struggling to even have a focused consciousness. But I could remember one scripture verse from Psalm 30. It says this, weeping lasts for the night, but joy comes in the morning. And that night, that night, the darkest night of my life, that night, every time I would come to any kind of lucidity, I would pray, God, Weeping lasts for the night. Joy comes in the morning. Get me to, through to morning. Weeping lasts for the night. Joy comes in the morning. Get me through to morning. That was the only scripture I could remember. It was the only clear thought I could have. And I must have prayed that prayer dozens of times as I kept waking up every minute or two or 15 minutes or 20 minutes, coming back to some kind of awareness and wondering where I was and what was happening. And then it would come to me, God, weeping lasts for the night. Joy comes in the morning. Just get me through to morning. It was that verse right there. This is my comfort in my affliction. Have you ever been in so much pain, hurting physically, damaged relationally, disappointed with life? Have you ever been in so much pain that there was nothing left to cling to except a promise from God? and his word kept you going? Look, I have been there a few times in my life and this one I've told you about is a good example. But look up at the top. I am weary from grief, strengthen me through your word. On December the 6th, 2014, I was at a breakfast preparing to speak at a conference in Dallas, Texas. My phone rang and I, saw that it was from an old deacon that I had known years ago. I don't even know how I had his number in my phone, but I thought, that's unusual. And I answered it, and he said, Jeff, I'm sorry to be the one to call you and tell you this, but we know you should know immediately your mother just passed away. Now, this was a shock. My mother was a 77-year-old West Texas ranch woman who rode every day. She was vigorous, outgoing, healthy in every way. And like she probably wanted it, she came in on a Friday night and said, man, I'm tired. And her husband said, woman, you're working too hard. <laughs> you need to take it easy a little bit. And she said, ah, I'm fine. And she went to bed and died. Never woke up the next morning. When I received that news, I, I was devastated by it. The shock of it, the unexpected nature of it, the suddenness of it, the fact that there were a lot of people expecting me to stand up in about 20 minutes and preach and all of that thing coming together in my mind. But something else came to mind too. And that was 17 years before when my mother was 60, 
She had finally placed her faith in Jesus Christ, publicly professed him as her Lord and Savior, and been baptized in Little Country Baptist Church in West Texas. My mother was a Christian. And after the initial shock of that phone call hit me, I turned to the Bible and I started reading verses that said things like, I will go and prepare a place for you, Jesus promised us. And he said he would go and prepare a place for us, that where he would be, we would be with him also. And I started reading verse after verse after verse about grief and about heaven and about God and about the resurrection and about Jesus and about how he was sustaining my mother. And that passage of scripture right there, he, this word became my comfort in my affliction, yes, but up at the top, I became, was weary from grief, but I was strengthened through his word. Have you been there? Have you been there with your heart broken because your child died? Your spouse died, your parent died. You've been there because you were heartbroken. But then you remember that we do not grieve as those who are without hope, 1 Thessalonians 4, 13. We do not grieve as those who are without hope. No, instead we have hope because of the resurrection and we have hope because of heaven and we have hope because of the reality of what God's word says about life after death. We have hope. And the word of God sustains us in our grief. So when I say that the word of God provides encouragement, these are two good examples of what Psalm 119 says to us. It encourages us in our affliction and it definitely sustains us in our grief. Number three, the word of God provides perspective. Look at what it says starting in verse 36. Turn my heart to to your decrees and not to dishonest gain. Turn my eyes from looking at what is worthless. Give me life in your ways. You join me. Your command makes me wiser. Your commands make me wiser than my enemies, for it is always with me. I have more insight than all my teachers, because your decrees are my meditation. I understand more than the elders, because I obey your precepts. The Bible helps us know what really matters. The first part talks about understanding what really matters in the context of a materialistic society. It says, Turn my heart to your decrees and not to dishonest gain. Turn my eyes from looking at what is worthless. Give me life in your eyes. You know, we live in an American culture that is absolutely saturated with materialism. We're constantly thinking about getting more, getting nicer, getting better. We're constantly comparing each other by what we have. And then something happens in life like I've just described, an affliction or an illness And suddenly, all of that doesn't matter anymore, right? What really is important comes into focus. And Psalm 119 says the Bible will help you keep that focus all the time. It'll help you remember what really matters, what makes a real difference in life, what really is essential for your happiness, what really matters as your, quote, keeping score. The Bible helps do what? Restore your perspective. It helps you to see what really matters. Number four, the Lord of God gives direction. Notice what it says. Your word is a lamp for my feet and a light on my path. You join me. I long for your salvation, Lord, and your instruction is my delight. Let me live and I will praise you. Make your judgments help me. I wander like a lost sheep. Seek your servant, for I do not forget your commands. Do you ever feel like that? that you're just wandering like a lost sheep, that you're trying to make your way through life and feel your way through life wondering which direction you're supposed to be going. 
Well, I recognize that the Bible doesn't specifically say turn left or turn right at every intersection, but the Bible does have a lot of specific instruction about the things that really matter in our lives that we really want to get right, if you will. The Bible has specific instruction, for example, about marriage and who to marry and what kind of relationship to seek in that context. The Bible has a lot of instructions about money and how to make it, how to save it, how to spend it, how to use it. The Bible has a lot of specific instruction about relationships about how to develop meaningful relationships in families and in churches and even in communities. The Bible has specific instructions about things like relating to the government and relating to authority and relating to, uh, to laws and p things like that. The Bible has a lot of specific instructions about these things. It gives us direction. It becomes what it says at the top, like a lamp for our feet and a light on our paths. The Bible gives direction. And then fifth, the Word of God offers protection. Look at what it says. My persecutors and foes are many. I have not turned from your decrees. I have seen the disloyal and feel disgust because they do not keep your word. Consider how I love your precepts, Lord. Give me life according to your faithful love. And then this last verse, you join with me. Princes have persecuted me without cause, but my heart fears only your word. You know, there is so much going on in our world these days, so much going on in our world that contradicts what the Bible says. In fact, Christians are feeling more and more like a minority in our culture than we've ever felt. And so we wonder, are we right about certain important things, or is the culture right about those things? And should we go along with the culture hoping that things will work out, or should we follow what God says and trust that in the long run, he's going to protect us in those contexts? I'm challenging you today to trust God's word and he'll protect you, no matter what the culture is telling you. You know, the, bio, the, the culture right now is redefining core things about, uh, the, about, the, about humanity created in God's image by redefining gender. The culture is redefining things like marriage, which God instituted in the very beginning, and now we're being told it can be redefined in different ways. And those of us who are still staying with what the Bible says about issues like gender and marriage are kind of getting in a pretty small minority these days. And yet we find that God says in that minority position, in the context of what his word says, there is protection. So God protects us by staying within what his word teaches. Well, these five things that I wanted to point out are five of the themes of Psalm 119. Now, they aren't all the themes. We could maybe pick out three or four or five more, but that's enough for you to understand this morning some of the benefits that Psalm 119 is trying to communicate to us about God's Word. God's Word gives us encouragement. It gives us protection. It helps us make good decisions. It helps us maintain right priorities. God's Word does all of these things for us. But so far, this has been kind of a theoretical discourse on what Psalm 119 says about the Word of God. But the psalm takes us to another level. Now let's see what it says about specifically how you can put this into practice in a way that is transformative in your life. There are three responses that you should make to Psalm 119. Let's look at them together. The first one is Psalm 119 should cause you to value the Word of God. Look with me on the screen. First, you value the Word of God by acknowledging that it's true. Then I can answer the one who taunts me, for I trust in your Word. 
Never take the word of truth from my mouth, for I hope in your judgments. The entirety of your word is truth. Each of your righteous judgments endures forever. Acknowledge today, demonstrate your value in the word of God by acknowledging today that it is true. Don't you long for something in our world today that's true and that isn't going to change? You know, in our world right now, there's a phrase that's being said often, trust the science. Well, I'm all for using the science. I think science and scientific inquiry and discovery is a gift from God. I want to use the science. But when I'm told to trust the science, I always want to ask, do you want me to trust the science from a textbook from the 1950s or the 1980s? Do you understand that science and the truth of science is always changing? Now, please don't understand, I'm not speaking pejoratively against science. I, I am all for scientific inquiry and scientific discovery and using the best of what we have available to us and scientific investigation and truth. I'm all for that. What I'm simply pointing out is that even though we're told to trust that as ultimate truth, it's just simply not ultimate truth. Do you follow, do you follow the distinction I'm making? But the word of God is what? Truth. Ultimate truth. That's not going to change. It hasn't changed in the centuries and it isn't going to change in the next centuries. In fact, the Bible itself says that only two things are going to endure into heaven. People and what? The word of God. That's all that's going to endure. It is always true. I value it and acknowledge it as ultimate truth. And then another way that you value the word of God is, next slide, is by loving the word of God for its timeless value. Look what the psalm says. I delight in your commands, which I love. I will lift up my hands to your commands, which I love, and I will meditate on your statutes. You join with me now. Lord, your word is forever. It is firmly fixed in heaven. Your faithfulness is for all generations. You establish the earth, and it stands firm. And then I open my mouth and pant because I long for your commandments. We love the word of God because it's timeless because it's going to last forever, because it's something that changes us uh, internally and makes us different people. We love it because it's firmly fixed and will never disappoint us. So the first response that Psalm 119 calls from us is to value the word of God by acknowledging it as truth and loving the word for its timeless value. Now, even more specifically, second, the Psalm says we must engage with the word of God. I want to talk to you about doing that in three ways. First, through daily Bible reading. Here's what the psalm says. I rise before dawn and cry out for help. I put my hope in your word. I am awake through each watch of the night to meditate on your promise. How I love your instruction. It is my meditation all day long. Now, this psalm speaks of engaging the Word of God in the morning and thinking about it all day long. Now, I don't want to be overly, overly legalistic about this. I know some of you work all night and you're on a different schedule than, the, than this psalmist was. And I know some of you have a different body clock and a different body rhythm, perhaps. And frankly, uh, you can barely get your eyes open in the morning and thinking about reading the Bible early is just almost impossible for you to even comprehend how you could even focus. I get all that. 
So I don't want to be legalistic about this and tell you that you have to read the Bible in the morning or, and only in the morning or you can't accomplish what the psalmist is saying. But I do want to challenge the most of us to think about it this way. Engaging the Word of God must include regular, if not daily, Bible reading. And I advise you or challenge you to do it as early in your day as possible so that it might saturate your thinking as you go through the day. Now, here's what I mean very personally. You know, I'm a seminary president. I have three earned degrees, all in Bible or related fields. I'm past 60, so I've been at this a while. And most days, most days, I get up early and I open the Bible and I read two chapters, sometimes three, and I pray a prayer like this, Lord, today, speak to me from your word Give me direction and guidance. Change me and make me more like your son, Jesus. Use your word to help me today. And I read the Bible, no commentaries, no study helps, no logging in to see what someone else said about the passage. I just sit there quietly and read the Bible, think about what it's meaning for me, and when I finish, bow my head and say a simple prayer expressing what I've read and asking God to put it into my life in a way that's meaningful and transforming. What I'm trying to illustrate is it doesn't matter how many degrees you have, how much Bible study you've done, how many years you've been at it, it's still important for every one of us to engage the Word of God on a regular basis, on a personal basis, and ask God to use it to change us. Every day is my goal. Now, I say it this way, that my goal is to read the Bible every day, is to read the Bible regularly with a goal of reading it every day. You say, well, do you ever miss days? <laughs> Are you kidding me? Do I look like Superman? <laughs> no. Uh, don't shake your head quite so enthusiastically about that Superman, okay? <laughs> I said, do I look like Superman? This sweet girl in the front said, nope. Nope, you don't look like Superman. I'm like, you got the answer right. You know, I have days when I'm not feeling well, days when I need to sleep a little extra, lots of days when I'm hopping on airplanes and going places. Just like you, I've got a lot of things competing with that early morning time. So I don't have a guilt trip that falls on me or some kind of a sense of depression or oppression if I miss a day. That's not the point here. But if I miss a day, what do I try to do the next day? Get started back again, right? So that regularly, with the goal of daily, I am reading the Bible. Now you say, well, I don't know where to read. It's not that complicated. Find a Bible reading plan. I use one that just has usually two chapters, sometimes three, depending on the length. And I'm not, I, I, this is, I mean, I don't know if I'm just being too basic with you here, but. I actually have it printed out on a piece of paper. And I have it tucked into a notebook that's in my work, work, in my work uh, bag. And I just pull it out the notebook every morning and look on there, bleary-eyed, 
Psalm 5, 6. That was yesterday. I'm like, okay, I'm there. Next day, guess what it's going to say? Psalm 6 or Psalm 7, 8, right? Next day, it's going to say Psalm 9, 10, right? You say, what if you miss a day? I just skip and read, skip ahead and keep reading wherever the date is. You say, well, why do you use such a simple plan? Listen, because I am basically a simple person, all right? You say, well, I'd rather use an app. You go ahead and use an app. That's fine. I'm old school. I'm going to use a piece of paper. I just like it right there where I can see right where to read every day. Don't have to think about it. Don't have to guess about it. Don't have to stress about it. Just pick a plan and read one. You say, I don't know about a plan like that. Your pastor can hook you up with a plan like that in five minutes after he talks to you and finds out where you are and what you need to be doing. They're not hard to find. Engage the Bible by, first of all, reading it every day. Second, engage the Bible by regular Bible study. It says in the psalm, help me understand the meaning of your precepts so that I can meditate on your wonders. Teach me, Lord, the meaning of your statutes, and I will always keep them. Help me understand your instruction, and I will obey it and follow it with all my heart. Read the Bible. Second, study the Bible. This is why the brother that was up here earlier that was saying it's time to restart life groups is such a vital part of your church. Because not only do you need to read the Bible personally, you need to get together in a group and talk about it with somebody and figure out what it really means. You say, well, I'll just study it on my own. No, if you do that, you're gonna get offline. You're gonna get out of step. You say, no, you don't know how smart I am. Yeah, I do know how smart you are. You're not gonna be able to do it on your own. Because when you study the Bible by yourself, you are inevitably going to drift into the same old ruts you've always been in or the same old perspective you've always had or the same old understanding you've always come to. And here's the sad part, the same old prejudices or misunderstandings you brought with you to the text. That's why you need somebody else to say, well, I see it a different way. And in the iron sharpening iron conversation that takes place, better understanding is found. You need Bible study. You say, well, I'm intimidated by that. I don't know enough about the Bible to even go. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a little bit awkward. I'm not really that versed on it. Listen, you're the exact person this church is set up to help. We're not looking for expert Bible scholars to join these life groups. We're looking for people like you to come together and read the Bible and have someone who's a little farther along with it than you are give you some guidance and help you to learn, discuss, and understand what it means for you. And when you do this, you get challenged in new and fresh ways to put the Bible into your life. So we're gonna engage the word by reading it and second, by studying it. And now third, get ready, this is the tough one, third, by memorizing it. The psalmist said, I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. I will never forget your precepts for you have given me life through them. I will never forget. Now, I put this one up here, but I'm gonna be honest, it's been the hardest one for me over my lifetime. Reading the Bible's been a challenge. Studying the Bible's been mostly a joy. But memorizing the Bible, quite frankly, has just been hard. Want some advice from an old man? Start young. <laughs> Start young. But every one of us can learn a few verses. You say, I don't think so. Oh, I know you can. You know how I know you can learn a few verses? Because you can hear a song twice on the radio and be singing it that afternoon when you're at the pool. Right? I know you can do this. And verses like that one I shared earlier, weeping lasts for the night, joy comes in the morning. That's what I'm talking about. Just a verse, just a verse. Where you learn a verse a week or even a verse a month and you set aside those special verses that you know mean the most to you and you commit those things to memory, you're gonna be shocked 
at how often God will bring that to your mind in the moment when you really need it. Yeah, yeah. Memorize Scripture. And again, you say, well, I need help to get started with that. You have pastors that can help you do that. Give you simple tools to help you learn Scripture passages that will be transformative for you over a lifetime. You say, well, there's no way I could memorize the Bible. I'm not talking about memorizing the Bible. I'm talking about a verse a week or even a verse a month and over life be transformed. Now let me show you just one illustration of how this all fits together. Do you know how you build a brick house? It's not a complicated question. You build a brick house, what? One brick at a time. One brick at a time. I am so fortunate that when I became a Christian at age 13, I came into a church that really emphasized these three things. Read the Bible, study the Bible, memorize the Bible. And I've been working on this for 50 years. And it's transformed me. It's changed me. It's made me the man I am today. Because God has been building the brick house of my life one brick at a time. So just get started. Just get started. It's never too late to start reading the Bible, studying the Bible, and memorizing the Bible, and watching it just transform you brick by brick over time. Get started now. So, we first of all value the Word of God, and second, we engage the Word of God, and now third, we obey the Word of God. Two ways of obedience Psalm 119 addresses. First, change your thinking. I will meditate on your precepts and think about your ways. I have chosen the way of truth. I have set your ordinance before me. I cling to your decrees. Lord, don't put me to shame. I pursue the way of your commands, for you broaden my understanding. The first way of to, the first step in obeying the word of God is change your thinking. You know, in our world today, there's so many things that are being taught that are contrary to what God says in his word. And the longer that you've lived in this world system before you became a Christian, the more your mind has been saturated with all of this false teaching and wrong thinking. And so your first step in cha- in obeying the word of God is to change your thinking. To let it saturate your mind so that it says so that it changes the way you think about relationships, about finances, about money, about, excuse me, about marriage, about morality, about ethical choices, and about relational dilemmas. The Bible speaks of all these things, and it changes our thinking about them. So your first step of obedience to the Word of God is allowing it to change your thinking. And then finally, it's to allow it to, cho- change, to choose your actions. The Bible says, teach me, Lord, the meaning of your statutes, and I will always keep them. Help me understand your instruction, and I will obey it and follow it with all my heart. And then this this great verse, I am resolved to obey your statutes to the very end. You know, a few years ago, I was uh, working in a context with some well-known people. I was standing in the airport in Phoenix, Arizona one Sunday afternoon, exhausted from preaching three times that morning, when a guy that seemed a little sketchy edged over to me. I thought, well, my first thought was actually a little bit of fear. Then I thought, we're past TSA, what can he have that can hurt me? (laughs) He edged over to me and he pulled down his sunglasses and I realized he was actually wearing a disguise. And he said, Jeff, what are you doing here? And I said, well, I'm, I'm getting on this plane. He goes, me too. You got to change your seat and sit by me. I'm like, okay. So we got our seats fixed and I sat by him. 
And he said, I want to sit by because I want to talk to you about something. I said, okay. He goes, I want to show you somebody that I met. And he shows me this picture. It's an incredibly beautiful woman. And I said, oh, she seems attractive. She seems nice. He goes, yeah, she's my girlfriend. Now, this was a problem because I knew this man's wife. And I said, what, what do you mean your, your girlfriend? Man, you, man, you're married. And then he said, I know, but God let this person come into my life. And that started a conversation that lasted from the takeoff in Phoenix to the landing in San Francisco. Me trying to help this man understand that there was no possible way he could use God to justify his adultery. I kept, his thinking was so convoluted and so warped and I kept bringing him back to the Bible. And it wasn't like I had to be tricky with the Bible or sophisticated with the Bible. This one made the top 10 list. You know what I mean? <laughs> Thou shalt not commit adultery. Remember that one? Okay, this did not require depth of Bible study. I didn't have to trot out my seminary president in this and throw some, some cool interpretations on him. No, it was like, dude, come to your senses. The Bible says, and now you have a choice. What are you going to choose to do? Not with your feelings, not with your convoluted thinking, not with your pictures on your phone, not with your emotional investment, not with all of this nonsense. You're going to have to choose. Are you going to do what God says? Or are you going to do what you want to do? Choose your actions. That's what it comes down to, my friends. Now, it may not come down to it right now in your life on such a blatant issue as the one I'm just describing, but this is what obedience means. This is what the Bible says. This is what everyone else says. This is what my emotions say. This is what my feelings tell me. This is what my culture says is okay. This is what my mother thinks. This is what my daddy thinks. This is what everybody else at my, at my job or my school says. And this is what God says. And obedience is basing your actions on what God says is true. So Psalm 119 is the longest chapter in the Bible. It's a long poem written as an acrostic with the Hebrew alphabet, addressed to God as a long prayer of appreciation for his word and of commitment to putting it into practice in our lives. My friends, the Bible is incredibly valuable. It brings us encouragement, direction, perspective, and so much more than I've said this morning. And it calls for us to make a response, to value the Word of God, to engage the Word of God, and most importantly, to obey word.